Turned Up Dead is a true crime podcast. The cases we cover include details of violence, sexual assault, suicide, and homicide. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this show are those of individuals and not Turned Up Dead. Hello, and welcome back to Turned Up Dead. I'm Fiona, and the true crime case I'm going to share this month is of the events surrounding the murder of 14-year-old Jodie Jones and the subsequent conviction of Luke Mitchell. While everyone can agree that what happened to Jodie was inexcusable, the conviction of Luke Mitchell, who was her then 14-year-old boyfriend, is polarising. As usual, I'll share my thoughts at the end, but the telling of this story will be a little different. I'll start by sharing the information I've been able to find that was presented at Mitchell's trial, and what was reported in the media at the time. I'll then cover the reasons that an increasing number of people doubt Mitchell's guilt, and believe he has been wrongfully convicted. A quick content warning. Although not in any detail, this episode briefly mentions sexual assault. In the summer of 2003, Jodie Jones was a typical 14-year-old. She lived in Scotland with her mother Judy, her older brother Joseph, and her mother's partner, Alan Ovens. Jodie's father, James Jones, had passed away in 1998. Jodie also had an older sister, Janine, who lived with their grandma. Jodie and her family lived in East Houses, a small community about seven miles from Edinburgh. East Houses is about a mile and a half east of the village of Newbattle, where 14-year-old Luke Mitchell lived. A footpath called Rowan's Dyke links the two villages. It runs between a field and an old wall that's about six feet high. Behind the wall, there's a strip of woodland that local teens would hang out in and drink alcohol and smoke marijuana. Jodie went to St David's Roman Catholic High School in Dalkeith, which is where she met Mitchell. They became boyfriend and girlfriend in March 2003. Entries in Jodie's diary show that she was head over heels for Mitchell, and the teenage couple spent most weekday evenings and weekends together. After school on June 30th, Jodie took the bus home as usual, and arrived home not long after 4pm. The previous month, her mother had grounded her for just over a week for staying out late and smoking weed. Jodie now had many more chores to do around the house, and had to abide by a curfew. She wasn't allowed out until 6pm, and had to be home by 9pm. But at around 4.30pm, Jodie's mother, Judy, had a change of heart. That's you, Hen. You can go out when you want to. You don't have to wait till 6 o'clock. Jodie almost immediately texted Luke Mitchell to arrange to meet. She used her mum's phone because hers wasn't working. Mitchell soon texted back saying he could meet her. Jodie's mother's partner, Alan, got home from work at about 4.45pm. Shortly after, Jodie went into the living room and told her mother, That's me off now, Mum, and gave her a kiss. When Judy Jones took the stand during Luke Mitchell's trial, she elaborated, telling the court that Jodie said she was meeting Mitchell and asked her to save some of the lasagna she was cooking for her to eat when she got back. Jodie left at around 4.50pm and headed to her end of Rowansdyke Path to meet Mitchell. Her mum, Judy, later explained that she didn't like Jodie walking down the path alone, which was why the teens would always meet at Jodie's end. At 5.32, Mitchell called Jodie's house, but his call didn't connect. He called again at 5.40pm. This time, Alan answered. Mitchell asked where Jodie was, and Alan replied that Jodie had already left to meet him. Around this time, two women were driving along New Battle Road. They saw a boy, thought to be Mitchell, standing opposite the entrance to Rowan's Dyke Path. About an hour later, Mitchell called his friends and went to meet them in the grounds of a nearby old abbey. He arrived on his own, and there was no sign of Jodie. At around 9pm, 
Mitchell left the Abbey and walked home. It was a little earlier than he usually went home, and well before his 10pm curfew. At 10.30pm, he took the family dog, Mia, on her evening walk. Jodie's curfew was also 10pm, but she hadn't returned home. Even though it was night, it was the middle of summer, so despite the time, it was still daylight. After half an hour, at 10.38pm, Judy texted Mitchell's phone. The message was intended for Jodie, who she called Toad. Judy texted Jodie something along the lines of, Right, Toad, say goodnight to Mitchell. That's you grounded for another week. Luke Mitchell immediately called Judy and claimed he hadn't seen Jodie all night. Worried, Judy began making calls to try to find her daughter. After ten minutes, Judy called Mitchell again. She hadn't found Jodie, and so she told Mitchell that she was calling the police. Mitchell told her he'd go back out to see if he could find Jodie. It was now starting to get dark, so he grabbed a torch and went back out, taking Mia, the dog, with him. Luke Mitchell and Judy spoke on the phone again, just before 11pm. By this time, Mitchell was at the end of the path. He walked down, but didn't see or hear any sign of Jodie. At about 11.20pm, two police officers arrived at Jodie's house and took her details. Judy also gave them Mitchell's phone number before they left around five minutes later. Instead of going west along Rowan's dyke path, the officers walked south down another footpath called Ladies Path. Towards Jodie's end of Rowan's dyke path, Mitchell saw Jodie's older sister, Janine, Janine's fiancé, Stephen, and Jodie's maternal grandmother, Alice. They met up and the four walked back down the path where Mitchell had just walked. Then, Mitchell stopped at a section of the wall that had broken, leaving a V-shaped gap. Mitchell handed his dog's lease to Alice and jumped over the V in the wall and into the woodland. Without hesitating, he turned left. Within minutes, he called back to the path that something was there. Luke Mitchell had found Jodie's body. She was laying on the ground, naked, except for her socks, which were still partly on her feet. Her trousers had been used to tie her hands behind her back, and the rest of Jodie's clothes were strewn around her body. It was a horrendous scene. Jodie had multiple knife wounds on her stomach, breasts, head and face. Defensive wounds on her arms indicated that she had fought her attacker, and blood on surrounding woodland suggested she had either attempted to flee, or that her killer had dragged her. Jodie's neck had been cut repeatedly, nearly decapitating her. It appeared that some of the injuries had been inflicted post-mortem. Mitchell and Stephen helped 66-year-old Alice over the wall. When she saw her granddaughter's body, she began to scream. Janine had stayed on the path, but when she heard her grandmother's screams, she too began screaming. It was 11.35pm. Luke Mitchell called 999 and told the police to hurry. Mitchell and Stephen helped Alice back over the wall. As Luke Mitchell was climbing back onto the path, his phone rang. It was a police officer wanting to know their exact location. After five minutes, the police still hadn't arrived, so Stephen called them and told them to hurry. Around five minutes after this, two police officers arrived. One officer took Alice, Janine and Stephen away from the scene to the school close to the end of the path closest to Jodie's house. Some other members of Jodie's family had already gathered in the school car park, and Alice, Janine and Stephen were left with them. Meanwhile, the other officer asked Luke Mitchell to show them Jodie's body, but he refused. At 11.55pm, the officer radioed in to report that they had found the body. 
Mitchell was then taken to Dalkeith Police Station. At the police station, the police took his clothing and shoes, searched him and gave him a forensic suit to wear and interviewed him. When Mitchell's mother, Kareem, called him, a police officer answered and told her to come to the police station. Kareem was unaware that Jodie had been found dead. The police took Jodie's family to another police station, where Alice, Janine and Stephen remained until around 2am when they were allowed home. Jodie's mother and her partner, Alan, stayed at the station to give their statements to police. Detective Chief Superintendent Craig Dobby from Lothian and Borders Police had been appointed Senior Investigating Officer shortly after the discovery of Jodie's body. Around 1am on Tuesday, July 1st, he arrived at Rowan's Dyke Path. Despite the scene not being processed and the crime scene manager and forensics yet to arrive, some of the branches on the trees surrounding Jodie's body were cut to allow easier access for crime scene photos to be taken. The crime scene manager arrived just before 4am. By this time, Jodie's mother and her partner had left the police station and were at her house. Alice, Janine and Stephen were also there, and for some reason they hadn't given their statements when they were at the police station. The police took their statements at around 4am from Jodie's house. The police also took their shoes, but they didn't take any of the clothing they were wearing when they discovered Jodie's body. At 4.45am, a forensics officer attended the scene, but left without seeing Jodie's body because they couldn't get over the wall due to having a bad back. No reason has been given for why they didn't walk around and use an entrance further up the wall. Around 5am, the police photographer and videographer began recording the scene. While this was happening, Mitchell was still at the police station. He and his mother had been appointed a family liaison officer and were allowed to go home shortly before 7am. Meanwhile, it had started to rain. Jodie's body had been left uncovered and the police didn't put up a crime scene tent to protect the scene from the rain. At around 8am, the second forensics officer arrived. By this time, someone had rolled Jodie's body onto a plastic sheet and police officers had gathered items from around her body. It's not publicly known if any attempt was made to establish Jodie's time of death, and there are no known records of her body temperature being taken. At 10.10am, after almost 12 hours of being left uncovered and open to the elements, Jodie's body was removed from the scene. That same morning, police began to appeal for anyone who had been near the scene to come forward. Rowan's Dyke Path was closed to the public. However, rubbish bin collections in the area went ahead as usual. Students walked to the nearby school using the surrounding paths, and the local council cut nearby hedges. On July 2nd, the public learned that Jodie had been the victim of what the police described as a frenzied knife attack. Scottish newspaper, The Daily Record, ran a story with the headline, Deranged Jodie Killer Soaked in Her Blood. The story gave an overview of what had happened, including the fact that Jodie had been going to meet her boyfriend. On the same day, Janine and Jodie's brother, Joe, joined two memorial services at Jodie's school. Prayers were read for Jodie, and a friend sang Sting's Field of Gold. The Daily Record reported that Judy was too distraught to attend. Scottish newspaper The Herald reported, quote, A rain-soaked notice told pupils not to use the side entrance to New Battle High, nearest the route, and one bunch of bright pink and yellow flowers lay beside the turning Jodie would have taken on Monday evening before she was murdered. The same article mentioned forensic teams working under tents that had been put up to protect the crime scene. 
Another article published by the same paper on the same day reported Detective Superintendent Dobby saying, quote, That's another thing that people should be aware of. If anyone is aware of anyone with bloodstained clothing or anything going into dry cleaning with bloodstains. By July 3rd, the police had ruled out the attack being sexually orientated. The Herald reported that one of the UK's leading criminal psychologists, Dr Ian Stephen, said that the frenzied nature of the attack indicated that the killer was in, quote, an extremely overstimulated state, end quote. The psychologist suggested the killer had come to be in this state from alcohol, drugs, or as the result of someone else upsetting them. Luke Mitchell hadn't yet been named as Jodie's boyfriend, let alone a suspect, but his name was very much at the forefront of Detective Superintendent Dobby's mind. The police had learned from Mitchell's school friends that he often carried knives, and like many of his friends, he smoked marijuana. The Mitchells had a log burner in their garden, and neighbours had spoken of a smell of burning coming from his family's back garden on the night of Jodie's murder. None of the clothing that Mitchell had been wearing had blood on it. Police theorised that either Mitchell's mother or his brother, Shane, had used the log burner to get rid of evidence, such as bloody clothing, that Mitchell had worn when he killed Jodie. However, a number of other people who had been on and around Roan's Dyke Path at the time Jodie was killed had come forward and told of what they had witnessed. A cyclist had told the police of hearing what he described as strangling noises coming from behind the wall close to the V-shaped break when he rode along the path at around 5.15pm. Other witnesses said that they had seen two boys trying to restart a stalled moped at the path's entrance at around 5pm, and more witnesses reported seeing a moped propped against the wall by the broken V-section. They didn't see anyone with the moped. The cyclist hadn't seen the boys or the moped. On July 4th, in an article titled Dark Clouds of Fear Hang Over Community, Children and parents warned to be on their guard after brutal murder. The Herald named Luke Mitchell as Jodie's boyfriend. The article reads, Yesterday, pupils, mostly accompanied by parents, were among those adding to the growing floral tributes placed at the entrance to the pathway less than 200 yards from the murdered 14-year-old's home. Among them was a bouquet of six red and white roses, believed to have been left by Luke Mitchell, Jodie's boyfriend. The message read, The finest day I ever had was when tomorrow never came. I love you, Mitchell. The Daily Records article on the same day had the headline, DNA will hold the key to justice. The article began as follows. The crucial piece of evidence which will nail the killer of Jodie Jones, is most likely to be invisible to the naked eye. As the 14-year-old struggled with her killer during the frenzied knife attack, it is almost certain that he left his DNA on Jodie's clothing. While these papers were being read across Scotland, the police went back to the Mitchell home. They took Luke Mitchell and interviewed him again, this time under caution, and thoroughly searched the house. The police took all of Mitchell's clothing except what he was wearing. They took his computer, swabbed the door handles and took the log burner from the garden to be forensically tested. That evening, the police held a press conference and called for the boys who had been seen near the crime scene with the moped to come forward. The following day, one of the riders of the moped went to the police and the day after that, Sunday 6th, the second moped rider came forward. The moped riders were John Ferris and Gordon Dickey. Ferris and Dickey are related to each other, but not closely, and John Ferris had a connection to Jodie. His mother was in a relationship with Jodie's uncle, 
Despite there being no blood relation or relation by marriage, Ferris was referred to as Jodie's cousin and was treated like a full member of her family. Ferris had fair, curly hair, and the day following Jodie's murder, he had given himself a haircut. Both John Ferris and Gordon Dickey initially told the police that they had been on the path an hour earlier than they were actually there. The police wouldn't realise this discrepancy until weeks later. Sniffer dogs were brought to Roansdyke Path a few days after Jodie was murdered, but this was after the crime scene had been cleaned by being bleached down. On Monday, July 7th, the papers reported that the police had ruled out both John Ferris and Gordon Dickey as suspects. The Daily Record also named Luke Mitchell as Jodie's boyfriend and said that, quote, Police are almost certain that Jodie walked from her house to the beginning of the Roman Dyke Woodland Path, 300 yards away, end quote. The article said that the police had taken 500 calls from the public about the murder, but that it was, quote, still not known exactly which route the youngster took after she left her home, end quote. Despite not knowing Jodie's exact path, the police staged a reenactment in which a police officer dressed as Jodie walked the route they believed she took from her house to Rowan's Dyke Path. On July 10th, the police appealed for a young woman who people in the area had seen on the day Jodie was murdered. The young woman was pushing a pushchair. She had blonde hair and was wearing a miniskirt. New posters appealing for the public's help were made and distributed. The police continued to search Woodland close to where Jodie's body was found. On July 11th, the Daily Record reported that, quote, Detectives deny the trail has gone cold in the hunt for the 14-year-old's killer. By this time, the paper claimed the police had interviewed 1,400 people and were currently studying the forensics of Jodie's clothes. The forensics revealed an array of evidence on and around Jodie's body. Police forensics recovered three full DNA profiles and at least two partial DNA profiles. Saliva, hair and fibres were also recovered. There was no evidence of sexual assault and no foreign DNA was found internally. The first full DNA profile came from semen and sperm heads that were recovered from Jodie's torn and bloodstained t-shirt. Jodie and Mitchell were sexually active, but this DNA wasn't Mitchell's. The second full DNA profile was from a condom that had been discarded close to her body. This profile didn't match Mitchell either, and Jodie's DNA wasn't found on the condom. In fact, none of the full DNA profiles matched Mitchell. No trace of Jodie's blood was found on any of the clothing that police had taken from his house, and the log burner showed no evidence that any clothing, bloody or not, had been burned in it. The police were unable to match the DNA from the discarded condom to anyone they knew. But the DNA profile from the semen and sperm heads on Jodie's t-shirt matched Stephen Kelly, Jodie's sister's boyfriend. The police also found semen and sperm on Jodie's bra. It's not known how thoroughly the police investigated any part Stephen Kelly might have played in Jodie's murder but they came to accept an innocent explanation for his sperm being on the t-shirt Jodie had on when she was killed. The explanation was that Kelly's semen and sperm had transferred to Jodie's bra from the t-shirt which belonged to Janine, Jodie's sister, and Kelly's fiancé. They say that Janine's t-shirt was clean when Jodie put it on, but that Kelly's DNA had transferred onto it when it was washed with some of his clothing. On July 14th, the Daily Record reported that the police had been questioning a teenage boy about a missing knife. It repeated that Jodie was on her way to meet her boyfriend, and again named Luke Mitchell, and added that Jodie, quote, texted Mitchell before leaving home to say she was on her way, but she never arrived, end quote. 
The article goes on to mention the activities of local teenagers. Quote, Police have also been investigating the activities of a group of teenagers in the area. It is understood that they have been looking at their interest in goth music and macabre late-night meetings in local cemeteries. Officers have also been investigating websites the youngsters visited on the internet. End quote. On July 15th, two of Jodie's aunts took part in a televised appeal. Jodie's aunt Diane described Jodie to the public and said, quote, She borrowed her sister's clothes, wasn't tidy, and at times liked to tease her brother, sister, and other members of her family. End quote. Following an appeal made by Jodie's mother, two witnesses contacted the police about a man they had seen walking behind Jodie on the day she was killed. On July 16th, detectives appealed for information about the man, who was described as being white, in his late teens to early 20s, around 5 foot 7 inches to 5 foot 10 inches tall, with a stocky build and dressed in dark clothing. One of the witnesses believed that they saw the same man on the day that the reenactment took place, high-fiving his friends near the path. The Scotsman reported Detective Inspector Tom Martin, an officer in the case, as saying, quote, This is a significant development for the inquiry team. We now have two independent witnesses who have given us good statements about seeing a young woman who is similar in description to Jodie. Both witnesses saw the girl walking in East House's road towards the entrance to Roman Dyke Pathway at around 5pm, and both also noticed a man walking closely behind the girl. Interestingly, one of the witnesses believes he then saw the same man again on Monday 7th of July, one week later, the night of the police reconstruction. If this is the case, we need to trace this person as a matter of urgency, as he may have seen something important on the night that Jodie died. End quote. Over the next couple of days, articles about Jodie still appeared in the papers, but there were no significant updates. A knife had been found near the scene, but it was ruled out as being the murder weapon. Police divers searched the River Esk, paying close attention to the section of the river that ran by the Mitchell home. After more than three weeks, Rowan's Dyke footpath was reopened to the public. On July 19th, the BBC News reported that the man seen on the day of the reenactment had been ruled out of the investigation because he had been working in England at the time of Jodie's murder. He had just gotten off the bus and was greeting friends after being away for some time. The police believed this was a different man to the one who was walking closely behind Jodie on the same day she was killed. About this, D.I. Martin said, quote, this means we are now focusing our attention on the week one sighting and the man walking behind a girl fitting Jodie's description. End quote. On July 21st, the police set up roadblocks for the second time and questioned around 600 drivers in an attempt to find more witnesses. The police had set up a similar roadblock and questioned 800 people two weeks prior. Two days later, on July 23rd, the police turned down an offer to make an appeal on Crime Watch. Crime Watch is a serious TV programme that has aided in solving several high-profile crimes. An unnamed detective on the Jodie Jones case told the Daily Record, quote, We know Crime Watch can be a valuable tool, but we are already dealing with so much information at the moment that a nationwide appeal may not be a help. If anything, it might be a hindrance. End quote. On July 31st, the young woman who had been seen pushing a pushchair contacted the police. She had been away on holiday, so she had missed the appeals for her to come forward. Unfortunately, she hadn't seen anything that proved helpful to the case. A local woman named Andrina Bryson told the police that she had seen a young couple standing at the entrance to Roansdyke Path, just before 5pm on the day of the murder. Although the girl had her back to the road, it was at the end of the path closest to Jodie's house, and the police believed it was Jodie and the boy was Mitchell. In the early hours of Thursday, August 14th, a marked police car sat outside the Mitchell home. 
It had been there since around 4am. A little before 7am, a blacked-out van and unmarked cars pulled into a lane behind the home. After about 10 minutes, two plainclothes police officers knocked on the door. They spent around five minutes inside the home before bringing Mitchell out in handcuffs. Then police officers and sniffer dogs entered the property and began to search again. At the station, the police took a Polaroid photograph of Mitchell and interviewed him under caution without a parent or lawyer present. Under the headline, The Net Closes in Jody Killer, an article in the Daily Record on this day spoke of a breakthrough from the results of fresh forensic tests. It included a quote from a police source which said, quote, This is being viewed as a significant step towards identifying the killer. Mitchell was questioned by the police for hours and wasn't even left alone when going to the bathroom. Despite repeated questioning, Mitchell told the same story as he had the day Jodie was killed and didn't admit to causing Jodie any harm. After nearly seven hours, he was released without charge. The next day, the media reported on the search and Mitchell's third police interview. The police took the Polaroid photo and showed it to Andrina Bryson, along with 11 other photos of young men in a photo lineup. Miss Bryson identified Mitchell as the boy she had seen with the girl at the entrance to the path. On August 18th, the Herald reported of a homeless man who sheltered nearby, but seemed to have left in a hurry around the time Jodie was killed. He was one of two homeless men who slept in an old bell chamber in the grounds of New Battle Abbey College, about a quarter of a mile from Roansdyke Path. Police, who had gone to look for him, found a sleeping bag and boots, which had been set alight but hadn't completely burned. The same article told of some golfers who had been on the New Battle Golf Course on July 1st. They had told the police about a man they had seen, who came out of the woods to the northwest of the crime scene, carrying a bundle. When the man realised the golfers had seen him, he went back into the woods. It was later reported that the homeless man had come forward and was ruled out of the investigation. He turned out to be an Englishman known to the police in England. This was the week the new school term started. Mitchell had been told he'd have to wait a few days before he could return to school. After seeing his name in connection to Jodie's murder, many parents had concerns about their children attending the same school as him, and so did his teachers. When Mitchell did return to school, he was kept away from the other students. This caused a disagreement between his mother and the school. The school then decided that Mitchell wasn't allowed back, so he continued his studies at home and sat exams elsewhere. On August 25th, the Daily Record printed an article under the headline DNA Boost in Hunt for Jodie Killer. The article reads in full, quote, Detectives have found a DNA sample which could help catch the killer of schoolgirl Jodie Jones. The vital clue was taken from clothing worn by the 14-year-old when she died. It is believed to belong to the prime suspect. Police say they are close to revealing the evidence against the person in a report to the procurator fiscal. The fiscal will then decide if there is enough proof to bring a murder charge. Jodie, a pupil at St David's High School in Dalkeith, Midlothian, was found stabbed to death on June 30th. She had left her home in nearby East Houses just after 5pm to meet her boyfriend, Luke Mitchell, 15. Her mum raised the alarm when Jodie failed to make a 10pm curfew. End quote. On September 3rd, 2003, hundreds of people gathered for Jodie's funeral. The song, Come As You Are, from the 14-year-old's favourite band, Nirvana, played as her coffin was taken into the church. Jodie was buried next to her father, in a cemetery just a few miles away from her home. Her headstone reads, quote, Sunshine memories of Jodie Jones, taken from us on 30th of June 2003, aged 14 years. My baby, my wee mentor, Mammy, loved dearly by her dad, Jimmy, and much-loved wee sis of Joseph and Janine, end quote. 
Some lyrics from the Nirvana song, Come As You Are, are curved above the band's smiley face logo. Below this, it reads, quote, We can feel sad that she is gone, or open our eyes, smile, love, and go on as she'd want, end quote. And it calls her a ray of sunshine. Jodie's family had asked Mitchell to stay away from Jodie's funeral. In the documentary, Murder in a Small Town, Corrine Mitchell explains that they decided to conduct a small ceremony at their home so Mitchell could pay his respects and say goodbye to Jodie. Corrine Mitchell had doubts when Sky News asked if they can film it, but she eventually agreed. The news crew filmed their ceremony and questioned Mitchell and his mother. At one point, the reporter asked Mitchell if he had killed his girlfriend. Mitchell replied, quote, No, I never. I wouldn't. End quote. He said what was happening was worse than a nightmare. And, quote, All the police accusations I couldn't care about. I just want to find out what happened and who did it. End quote. After Jodie's funeral service, Mitchell, his mother, and two female friends visited Jodie's grave. They stayed for about 40 minutes and Mitchell left Red Roses with a message that read, quote, Jody, love you always, Mitchell, end quote. Shortly after they left, Jody's family removed the flowers. Mitchell's home ceremony and interview was broadcast later the same day and was met with immediate backlash. One tabloid newspaper consulted a psychologist who said he saw no real signs of grief and suggested that Mitchell had rehearsed what he was going to say to Sky News. The interview had come as a surprise to the police. When asked about it, a police source later told the Herald that they still had only one suspect. The police asked people who had been on the path on the evening Jodie was killed to give samples of their DNA. And on September 12th, the Daily Record reported that eight local people had come forward to provide their DNA. The article recapped that Luke Mitchell, 15, found Jodie's body. On September 14th, the Sunday Mail reported that DNA recovered from saliva found close to where Jodie was killed was not Mitchell's. It also said, quote, Detectives have always played down speculation that more than one person was involved in Jodie's murder. End quote. It also said that the police were still looking for the stocky man who was following Jodie on the day of her death. The Daily Record, which is the sister paper to the Sunday Mail, reported a Jodie Law War. The article explained that the police felt that they had enough evidence to charge a suspect, but the Procurator Fiscal, in charge of the investigation, was reluctant to move on without more information. On October 1st, the same paper printed an article with the headline Jodie Copps to name the prime suspect. The police had compiled a report that named their main suspect and included statements from hundreds of witnesses and detailed results of DNA and forensic tests. The article repeats that Jodie was going to meet Mitchell and also that Jodie never arrived at Mitchell's home. It also said that six hours later, Mitchell discovered her body with a relative. On October 9th, the police conducted another search for the murder weapon. They used high-powered metal detectors to search the woodland more thoroughly and extended their search to nearby parkland, drains and a sewage treatment works. But after two days, they had found nothing of interest. On Friday, November 21st, the police submitted a report to the Procurator Fiscal. In this, they named Luke Mitchell as their sole suspect. The contents of this report were leaked to the media, who quickly reported that Mitchell was the police's only suspect in Jodie's murder. Mitchell and his family say they learned of this through the media. Their lawyer was reported as saying, quote, Mitchell is very, very upset to hear about being named, especially through the press. He is having considerable difficulty coming to terms with what has happened. This news will ruin this child's life. End quote. On November 26, Gordon Dickey gave another statement to the police. In this, 
he claimed that John Ferris had told him that some time after Jodie was killed, his sister, Yvonne, found a pair of damp and muddy gloves behind a radiator and gave them to the police. Yvonne said that they had strands of brown hair on them. When the police collected them, they were in a bed drawer where John Ferris kept his wallet. Tests showed that they had been submerged in water, and although they hadn't been washed with detergent, there were no reportable results. There was no mention of the strands of hair. Gordon Dickey's father had also been in the area Jodie was killed on the day of the murder. David Dickey told the police that he had walked his eight dogs in the area where Jodie's body was found at around 8pm on the evening Jodie was killed. He said he didn't see Jodie's body while out with his dogs, but when the police tested his shoes, the sole of one tested positive for blood. There is no more information about this blood, such as whether the police were able to get a DNA profile from it. On the morning of April 14th, 2004, the police raided the Mitchell home again. This time, police officers arrested Mitchell and detained his brother and his mother, Corinne. The police released Corinne after several hours of questioning and charged his brother, Sean, with attempting to pervert the course of justice. Corinne was later charged with the same offence. On April 16th, the Daily Record reported that a 15-year-old boy had been arrested in connection with Jodie's murder. The article repeats that Jodie was going to meet her boyfriend, but this time doesn't name Mitchell. Luke Mitchell turned 16 on July 24th, 2004. The law at the time meant that he was now old enough to be identified to the public. Mitchell's trial began in November 2005. A special courtroom had been set up, in which a full-scale replica of the section of the wall with the V-shaped break had been constructed. According to the Crown, Jodie was ungrounded, or uncurfewed, at around 4.30pm, and left her home to meet Mitchell at 4.50pm. Jodie met Luke at her end of Roansdyke Path, and was last seen there at around 5pm. Between then and 5.15pm, they argued that Mitchell attacked Jodie near the V in the wall. Mitchell killed Jodie with a knife in what was described as a frenzied attack. He then fled, leaving Jodie's body in the woodland over the wall from the Roansdyke path and went home. At 5.40, he called Jodie's house and asked if Jodie was there. He cleaned away any evidence of Jodie's blood on him and called his friends at 6.50pm. Mitchell met and hung out with his friends until about 9pm when he went home. After hearing from Jodie's family that she hadn't returned home, Mitchell went back out to join the search. By now it was after 11pm. Mitchell met Jodie's family on Rowanstyke Path, and shortly after he climbed over the V-break in the wall and found Jodie's body. At some point that night, a neighbour smelled something odd burning in the Mitchell's log burner. At around midnight, Mitchell was taken to the police station, where he remained until almost 7am the next morning. In addition to the murder of Jodie Jones, Luke Mitchell was also accused of unlawful possession of knives in a public place and with the supply of cannabis resin to a number of people, including Jodie. In Scotland, the outcome of a criminal trial can be guilty, not guilty, or not proven. Mitchell was pleading not guilty to all charges, with the special defences of alibi and incrimination. The police had found no direct evidence that indicated Mitchell was responsible for Jodie's murder, and the case against him for it was entirely circumstantial. The Crown's case for him being guilty was based on three pillars of evidence. One, that Mitchell knew where Jodie's body was. Two, Andrina Bryant's eyewitness testimony of seeing Mitchell with Jodie at the end of Roansdyke Path. And three, Mitchell not having an alibi. After five days, the trial was abandoned because of one jury member's delight at being on the jury and the revelation that another member of the jury's son went to the same school as Jodie Jones and Luke Mitchell. When the trial restarted, the prosecution called witnesses who testified to seeing Mitchell with knives. 
A 14-year-old who knew Mitchell was shown a leather knife pouch with Jodie's initials above 666, the year of her birth and the year of her death, and the Nirvana lyric, The finest day I ever had was when tomorrow never came. The witness said that he had seen Mitchell with the pouch and that he had also seen Mitchell use a Swiss Army-type knife and a thin-bladed penknife to cut cannabis. The jury were told that when the police searched Mitchell's bedroom, they had found 20 bottles of his own urine. A 17-year-old witness testified that Mitchell once told her, quote, he could just imagine himself going out and getting stoned and killing somebody, and how funny it would be, end quote. The court was also told that Mitchell was seeing another girl at the same time as he was seeing Jodie, and the similar appearance of the two girls was emphasised. According to the other girl, she didn't know of Jodie until she read about her death. From forensically examining Mitchell's phone, the police had discovered that the messages from this girl had been deleted. One of Mitchell's school teachers testified that she had referred Mitchell to a guidance teacher after he wrote an essay titled Pain and Suffering. Some of his essay read, quote, If God forgives everyone, then why the need to be sent to hell? If you ask me, God is just a futile excuse, at the most, for a bunch of fools to go around annoying others who want nothing to do with them. Are these people insane? Open your eyes. People like you need satanic people like me to keep the balance. End quote. The teacher told the court that she found the content quite worrying and unusual, and that it was the first time she had ever referred a student to the guidance staff because of a piece of writing. Part of another of Mitchell's essays read, quote, So what if I'm a goth in a Catholic school? So what if I dress in baggy clothes? Just because I'm more violent than others and cut myself, does that justify some pompous git of a teacher to refer me to a psychiatrist? Just because I have chosen to follow the teachings of Satan doesn't mean I need psychiatric help. End quote. Mitchell's school notebooks were also brought into court. Some of the messages Mitchell had written on them were read to the jury. Some examples of these include Taste the devil's green blood and Satan master lead us into hell. Fuck the queen and fuck the world. Donald Finlay QC, Mitchell's lawyer, cross-examined Mitchell's teacher and questioned, quote, this is an assortment of rubbish on a kid's jotter, isn't it? End quote. Mitchell's schoolteacher agreed. At one point, his lawyer read extracts from Jodie's diary, including a poem she had written entitled Burn Your Wings in Hell. Judy Jones testified about Jodie coming home from school. She described how Jodie texted Mitchell to arrange to meet and then sat on the sofa next to her playing games on her phone until Mitchell replied. Judy told how she had played her daughter a Rod Stewart song before she went to get ready. Describing Jodie leaving the house, Judy said, quote, She came into the living room and said, That's me off now, Mum, and she gave me a kiss, end quote. She also told the court of Jodie asking her to save some lasagna, and agreed that she left the house at around 4.50pm. The prosecution had questioned why Mitchell hadn't called Jodie's house after the 5.40pm call, when Alan told him that Jodie had left. Mitchell answered that he thought Jodie had been grounded again. During the trial, the prosecution asked Judy why Mitchell might have thought that Jodie might have been grounded. Judy said she had no idea why he might have thought that and said that if she was meeting someone and they hadn't arrived, she would have phoned to ask where they were. When Mitchell's lawyer asked Judy why she hadn't contacted Mitchell to see if he had found Judy, Judy said that she had been making a meal and hadn't realised the time. Judy's partner, Alan Ovens, testified about answering the phone to Mitchell. When the defence asked him if he got the impression that Mitchell was, quote, agitated, uptight, champing at the bit, or in a bad temper, or anything like that. Alan Ovens answered no. When Andrina Bryson gave her testimony about seeing a male and a female at the entrance to the path, she said it looked very strange. 
she said that the male was standing quite a few steps away from the female, with his arms by his side, with his palms facing out. Miss Bryson described the female as wearing a navy blue hooded jumper and trousers of a similar colour. She said the male was wearing a green fishing-style jacket with matching trousers, and he had sandy-coloured hair. She had been taken aback when she saw Mitchell's photo in the newspaper and thought it looked like the same person she had seen. However, when she was asked if she recognised the male she saw in court, she replied that she didn't know. Mitchell did look considerably different in court from how he looked two years before, on the day of the murder. His hair was tied back, and he looked older. Witnesses who knew Mitchell and had seen him on the night of the murder described him as wearing a green bomber-style jacket with orange lining, baggy jeans, and distinctive light-coloured snowboarding boots. In a later statement, one of these witnesses said that Mitchell might have been wearing a German army shirt. The cyclist told of hearing something from behind the wall alongside Rowan's dyke path. He testified, quote, I thought somebody had somebody in a headlock. It was a strangling sort of sound, a human thing, end quote. John Ferris and Gordon Dickey both testified. In the days following their elimination from the police inquiries, they had both handed in knives they claimed belonged to Mitchell. Ferris, who was 18 at the time of trial, admitted that Mitchell used to buy cannabis from him two or three times a week, and that he often saw Luke Mitchell with knives. He said that he was supposed to visit Jodie's brother on the day Jodie was murdered, but he had decided against it. When asked why it had taken him so long to go to the police after Jodie was killed, Ferris said that he didn't know. He also had no answer for not telling any of Jodie's family that he had been on the path around the time Jodie was killed, or to explain cutting his hair the next morning. Ferris said he initially told the police that he was on the path at the wrong time, because the clock at Gordon Dickey's house was wrong. Findlay put it to him that he and Dickey may have been in the area around the time that Jodie was attacked, and asked, quote, Yet you saw nothing, and heard nothing, end quote. Mr. Ferris answered no. The barrister then asked, You would have the jury believe you know nothing. Mr. Ferris answered yes, and he denied having anything to do with Jodie's death. Ferris confirmed that he was no longer welcome at his grandmother's house, and that Jodie's mother had told him that Jodie's brother, Joseph, was going to batter him. Dickie also denied having anything to do with Jodie's death. Like Ferris, he said that he couldn't remember what they were doing on the path. He claimed that he didn't approach the police because he didn't believe he had anything to tell them. Although Mitchell didn't testify at his trial, part of the statements he gave to the police were read during his trial. He described Jodie's grandmother, sister, and her sister's fiancé as panicky when he joined them on the path. Mitchell told Jodie's family his dog was a tracking dog, and asked if they had anything of Jodie's for her to smell. They didn't have anything, so Mitchell gave the command, Seek Jodie, find Jodie. Luke Mitchell said, quote, We walked past the V-shaped break in the wall, and a few yards past that, not even twenty yards past that, Mia stopped and put her nose in the air, and put her paws up on the wall as if trying to sniff over. The Herald reported Mitchell as saying, quote, By this point, I had managed to get the dog tracking. End quote. He remembered telling the others, quote, I think she has smelled something. End quote. And described going back to the V to climb over. He turned left and made his way along the woodland side of the wall to where Mia had been sniffing. Mitchell's statement continued, quote, I saw this white thing which stuck out in the light. I could see it was legs, like a tailor's dummy. After I saw the legs, I just took another step, and then I recognised it was a body laying there. End quote. He said he could see it was a naked female, and that there was blood on her neck. His statement says, quote, I thought it was Jodie. I just recognised the face. It looked like Jodie's. End quote. 
Janine testified that Mitchell had said that Mia was a tracking dog and had asked her if she had anything of Jodie's for the dog to smell. However, Janine said that Mitchell had gone directly to the V and climbed over. Janine's grandmother and fiancé also testified that Mitchell went directly to the V. At one point during Janine's testimony, Turnbull, prosecuting, asked her to join him by the replica wall. Turnbull walked along the wall and passed the V-shaped break. When Janine had settled back into the witness box, Turnbull asked her, quote, In your mind, is there any possibility that Luke Mitchell was ever as far past the V as the point I went to? End quote. And Janine replied, no. Turnbull continued to question Janine about Mitchell's behaviour upon finding Jodie's body. Janine's answers implied that Mitchell was unaffected by the discovery and didn't show the emotions that she and other members of the search party felt. When Finlay cross-examined Janine, he said, quote, Had it not been for Luke Mitchell, the search party would have walked past Jodie and left her where she was. End quote. Janine replied that she felt sick and was given a 15-minute break. After this, Finley reminded her that in her first statement, she had told the police that everyone was in hysterics after discovering Jodie's body. Janine replied that the only time Mitchell showed any emotion was when he was on the phone with the 999 operator and when she and the others had shouted at him. When Finley asked... Are you saying the police have written something wrong in the statement? She responded, quote, I may have phrased it wrong. They may have taken it down wrong, end quote. And commented, quote, I didn't mean everyone was in hysterics. As I said, the police have misrepresented it, end quote. When Jodie's grandmother, Alice Walker, spoke of finding Jodie's body, she saw a light-coloured shape and first thought it was an animal. When she moved around, she realised it was Jodie. Alice Walker said, quote, I did go closer up to Jodie and touched her forehead, and I went back to the wall again. End quote. When Mitchell's lawyer asked her if Jodie ever went down the path on her own, Alice said no. One of the women who had seen the boy thought to be Mitchell standing opposite the entrance of Rome's dyke path after the murder told the court that at the time she had commented that he looks as if he has been up to no good. The woman explained, quote, It was just the way he was standing. He wasn't looking as if he was waiting on anyone. His face, he was watching the ground, the pavement, constantly. End quote. The defence asked, He was doing nothing that was in any way wrong, menacing, threatening or distressing. Is that correct? And the witness answered, yes, and added, quote, It just didn't look right. I am sorry, but it didn't. End quote. According to the prosecution's timeline, this was after Mitchell had killed Jodie. The women's statements said the teenage boy was wearing a dark jacket, possibly dark green, with black baggy jeans, and had dark hair, which was possibly wet or styled with gel. Both women first said that they didn't see his face, but they both identified Mitchell as the youth during the trial. When asked how they were then able to identify Mitchell when they hadn't seen his face, they said that they had looked in the rearview mirror and saw the teen brush his hair from his face, and they got a glimpse of his face. Neither witness had said this in any earlier statement, and they hadn't described any facial features. When the prosecution asked one of the witnesses if she could identify the person she had seen, she responded, not sure. When the prosecution asked whether she could from a different angle or perspective, the eyewitness replied, quote, yes, but his head is different, end quote. The detective, who had taken Mitchell's statement shortly after he found Jodie's body, said Mitchell was perfectly calm throughout the time it took to take his statement. Donald Finley, QC, questioned pathologist Anthony Brusuttel about Jodie's injuries, and suggested that they showed that, quote, this girl fought literally to the death, end quote, to which the pathologist agreed. 
Finley then noted that there were no marks that showed Mitchell had been in such a struggle. Quote, not a bump, scratch, bruise, or abrasion. End quote. The singer Marilyn Manson painted a series of watercolours of murdered actress Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia. A Herald article from January 7th reads, quote, Members of the jury were shown a series of paintings by the goth rocker Marilyn Manson, who was known to be obsessed with the gruesome murder of Elizabeth Short in Hollywood in 1947. The prosecution showed the paintings and told the jury of the similarities between her injuries and Jodie's. Donald Finlay, QC, pointed out that there was no evidence that Mitchell had even seen Manson's paintings and argued that any similarities between Elizabeth Short's murder and Jodie's were superficial. Both victims had suffered knife wounds to some of the same body parts, but Miss Short's body had been cut in half. Finley introduced a report from another pathologist, which finished, quote, In summary, I see no forensically significant similarity between the injuries present on the two victims, allowing for the fact that they are both apparently sexually motivated homicides of young women, end quote. On December 23rd, the court was shown a Marilyn Manson video titled The Golden Age of Grotesque. The video contained shots of two girls tied together and struggling near a country track as hoods are placed over their heads. Part of a statement that a friend of Jodie and Mitchell had given to the police in September was read to the court. When asked about Jodie and Mitchell, she had said, quote, They really, really loved each other. They were always hugging and stuff, which was cool because most guys won't do that in front of people. End quote. She described being angry with Mitchell when he purchased a knife after Jodie's death and telling him that it was disrespectful. Mitchell had replied that it was only for cutting weed. When asked if she thought Mitchell had anything to do with Jodie's death, she replied, quote, no, I would. See, if he did tell me, I would have killed him there and then, and it would have been me sitting in the jail now, end quote. And then added, I think he's innocent. Mitchell's brother, Shane, told the court that he thought Mitchell was home on the evening Jodie was killed, but that he couldn't be sure because he didn't see him. The charges against Corinne and Shane had been abandoned just before the start of Mitchell's trial. However, the court was told that Corinne had been interviewed in connection with attempting to pervert the course of justice. This was for giving Luke an alibi, and in relation to a green Parker-style jacket. The Crown said that Mitchell wore the Parker jacket when he killed Jodie, and then, likely with the help of his mum, had disposed of the jacket, most likely by burning it. Mitchell and his mother claimed that he didn't have a jacket like this when Jodie was killed, Corinne Mitchell admits she did buy a dark green Parker jacket for her son, but it was after July 4th when the police had taken Mitchell's other clothing to be tested. She maintains that she gave the family liaison officer the receipt for the Parker. However, two witnesses said that they had seen Mitchell wearing a green Parker. The first witness was a teacher. He testified that he had seen Luke in school wearing the green Parker before the murder. The next witness's testimony implied that he saw Mitchell wearing the parka in a local store after Jodie was killed. He knew Mitchell from primary school. When asked, this witness said that he noticed Mitchell's parka because, quote, the murder and everything, end quote. Before giving her statement, Corinne was warned to tell the truth. Prosecutor Alan Turnbull, QC, asked her, Are you sure, Miss Mitchell? that you understand the importance of telling the truth in court? And do you understand, for instance, it is a crime to lie in court? It is a crime of perjury, and the crime of perjury in a murder trial is a very serious crime indeed. Corinne replied that she understood, and said, quote, Everything my entire family told police is true. End quote. The jury was told how Corinne had accompanied Mitchell to get a tattoo, and helped him lie about his age. Turnbull also questioned her about forgetting to tell the police about a knife she had bought for Mitchell to take on a camping trip six months after Jodie's murder. About this, Turnbull said, quote, 
That evidence provides the best example of the fact that you had joined in with Mitchell, doesn't it? End quote. The prosecutor had previously told her, quote, The thing that I'm going to suggest is that you abandoned all effort to exercise parental control over Mitchell, that your relationship with him changed from one of parent and child to that of accomplice. End quote. In his closing, Mitchell's lawyer described the murder, saying, quote, It was a cruel and barbaric act, and if you believe in the concept of evil in the world, then it was truly an act of unspeakable evil. Jodie was 14. Her life was cruelly taken from her. She was by all accounts a bright young teenager, intelligent, end quote. He reminded the court that he, and therefore Mitchell, didn't have to prove anything, and that it was up to the Crown to prove Mitchell's guilt. He went on to say, quote, This trial is not concerned in any way, shape or form, with finding out who killed Jodie. This trial is to answer one simple question. Has the Crown proved beyond reasonable doubt that Mitchell killed Jodie? End quote. On day 41 of the trial, the jury began their deliberations. After three and a half hours, the jury was sent home for the night. They began deliberating again the next morning. After another couple of hours, the jury found Mitchell guilty by majority. Judge Lord Nimmo Smith addressed Mitchell, telling him, quote, You have been convicted of a truly evil murder, one of the most appalling crimes that any of us can remember, and you will rightly be regarded as wicked. End quote. Mitchell was handed an unlimited sentence with a minimum of 20 years. This episode has ended up being quite long, so I'll stop here. And I'll cover the reasons why people think he's innocent and give you my own opinion in the next episode. Thanks for listening.